0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad, I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing he doctor and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're gonna get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not gonna talk about COVID. We're back, oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad MD MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I think we're rolling. I think we're rolling. I'm back. Plenary Session, video edition, joined by Amit Sarpatwari. Professor Sarpattori is an assistant professor at the Harvard Medical School. He's in the Portal Group, the Program on Regulation, Therapeutics, and Law. And he is an expert in epidemiology, in, in legal affairs, in regulatory science. And he is a friend of the show. Amit, it's great to have you back here again.
1: It's great to be here. Um, good to see you uh, somewhat face-to-face. Face-to-face.
0: As face-to-face yeah. as it's gotten in a long time. Exactly. <laughs> well, there's so much to talk about. You know, the FDA just keeps hitting the ball out of the park making sure innovation happens in this country. But before we get to all the fun of aducanumab uh, or aducanumab or whatever the hell you want to call it, um, let's talk a little bit about the exodus. And I'm talking about the exodus from the academy, Dr. Sarpatwari, the academy. So in the last few weeks, we've seen some people who I think are quite good. And I'll be honest to say, I think they are sharp. Um, You know, people will know. I've, of course... You know, I've, 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 I've had my disagreements with Peter Bach over the years, but I've had a lot of agreements with Peter Bach over the years. But one thing I will concede is that Peter Bach is a clever person. And uh, sometimes I read his papers often and I say, uh, you know, I hadn't thought of that. And uh, there's just not a lot of people in this business that you read their papers and you say, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, and when you find people like that, you you put them up on, uh, in, in a certain uh, on a certain uh, rung. I mean, that's, that's rare. I mean, let's be honest. This is an academy, but a lot of people, you read what they say, and you know what's coming. Uh, Neil Shaw. Neil Shaw, cost of care. Neil Shaw from the Harvard Medical School and, uh, and uh, Gowande's Laboratory. Uh, he's going to a company. And, um, and there was another person in your department who went to consulting about a year ago, Joshua.
1: Mm-hmm. Josh Cagney, yep. Josh Cagney, Who uh, done a lot of good yeah. work. But now it's over at uh, Johnson & Johnson at having their epidemiology group. Yep.
0: He's already to J&J, huh?
1: Yep. The siren
0: yep. call of J&J. Okay, so, and Peter's going to some small startup company that's working on blood-based cancer screening, which is uh-huh. going to be interesting because I think Peter has been uh, a thoughtful person in cancer screening. And I think he knows you need randomized controlled trials, measuring clinical endpoints before you adopt new screening tests. And, uh, and Neil is going to do something with uh, safer, ho- uh, delivery. Um, and Joshua is working for J and J. Um, okay. Here's my question to you. What's going on here? Um, You know, a a lot of thoughtful people, a lot of people who, you know, people may not like everything they've ever written, but no one can take away the fact that these are thoughtful people. Um, They're going to the industry, they're going to companies, uh, they're not staying in the academy. What is going on, Amit? Why is this happening?
1: I'm not sure that there's necessarily anything uh, amiss or a foul here. I think people are having families. I think in the case of, Peter, you probably have someone who is uh, looking at the uh, last stage of his career and where he thinks he can be most impactful. Um, I think that, you know, there's no doubt the appeal of uh, financially is there. So there have are we better than uh, many other sectors of academia in terms of what we're able to offer uh, academics? Yes. Does that compare at all with what you can get in the private sector? No. And so that is definitely uh, a motivating factor as people start having families, as people start considering school and college and things like that. But I think in general, there, there's also a sense and uh, that people think that they can have more of an impact. And it is... Uh, perhaps true in some respects that we know, and we can talk about this a little bit more about how difficult it is to actually shape policy. And that's oftentimes what you're trying to do in academia, at least in the positions we're in. Um, but I think you definitely know that, you know, whether it is developing a safety profile of a new drug, helping to uh, get a company off the ground that you think is doing something good for society. Um, there's a more sense, I think, a gratification or a sense that there would be a gratification of getting those things done and feeling like you've actually accomplished something with all of your hard work. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think that's true. What I think is difficult is the realization, once you're probably in some of those types of positions, that just like in academia, there's going to be a, a massive bureaucracy. And so a little bit different for a small startup, but compared to a behemoth like a and j they've got their own culture and they've got their own sort of cogs in the wheel that may slow things down. And yeah. so it's... Uh, I think it's a case of uh, a combination of uh, finance and a desire to get something done. Mm.
0: I, um, I think, I think you're onto something and I guess I would say that, uh, yeah, one component is clearly the the financial reimbursement, which is going to be much better, much better at any of those places at, at at any rank. And as you get further in your career, I think the gap is even gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, you know, the further along you are, the difference, the amount of money you might otherwise make is I think a far, uh, far higher. Um, the next thing I think you talk about is I think, um, you know, make an interesting point. I think, you know, somebody like Peter would have been ideal to bring on to Medicare, Medicaid, yes. FDA. Uh, he's at that stage of his career where, you know, Democratic president is probably his best chance of doing it. Um, this president, probably a good chance as any. And if you feel like you get passed over for those opportunities that, you know, when you're in your late 50s, uh, um, you know, I think I think people may feel slighted and they feel like th- that they're missing, like the last chance to make a big impact in the field uh, in one's career. Um I think that the other problem is that, uh, you know, it's push and pull. So you were talking about the pull a little bit. But what's the, the push? I think the Academy is doing a lousy job. It's very lousy. Um, why do they do a lousy job? Um, you know, every year goes by, I find uh, people emailing me to do things that um, not really, not really in my wheelhouse. Uh, lots of paperwork. Uh, everything is difficult. It making much more difficult now. Uh, you know, somebody comes and rotates with you. They want an evaluation. In the old days, you just fill out that piece of paper and you turn it right in. Now, how many logins? How many passwords, how many fucking passwords are you going to put in to get (laughs) to get this evaluation in? How much time do I have to spend resetting passwords to put an eval in? I mean, why is my my life harder?
1: Huh? Exactly. Or we're submitting to different journals, and oh god, running. kill me. <laughs> well, you know, I don't even. You know, I don't even
0: personally. I've uh, I've do it. Uh, that's uh, that's one of my that's skills. smart. It's, <laughs> yeah, you've, you've I've, outsourced. outsourced that. <laughs> I've, I've 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 found some people to help me with that because yeah, submitting the papers. Are they kidding you? Um, th- that's part of it. Um, and I yeah, think. I that- think
1: I- yeah, I, I guess I could say I haven't been around long enough in academia to sort of know what uh, whether or not there were glory days or not. I'm always a bit skeptical that the grass is always greener. Sure. I'm sure there was always problems to begin with, uh, but I, I do get a sense that uh, there is a significant burnout, and I'm not a clinician, so I think one of the sense among clinicians too is. You know, the, the amount of time you're staring at a screen versus actually interacting with yes. patients is, is a huge factor in this burnout. And so uh, that's clear. But even within your more research positions, yes, we haven't adapted to the times in the sense of what does, what does transformative scholarship mean? We talk about transformative innovation. Um, and so we're still under the rigid sort of get your grants, yes. get your publications, and make sure that those are empirical publications, not necessarily viewpoints or policy pieces that may uh, bring new insights into play. And so you're still operating in that traditional hierarchy. And it's not uh, well suited towards the times in terms of what most people, even in the, you know, in the community actually want or need. And I think that disconnect is, uh, you know, is a factor in all of this. But yeah, there's definitely something uh, that needs to be done to retain your impactful people like Peter um, mm-hmm. and get them uh y- 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 those ideas don't come from many people, and so no, that's right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, p- yeah. He, Peter, a, Peter's
0: essay that yeah. you know um, you could buy Gilead uh, at, rather than p- pay for their hepsi their hepsi drug uh, that at market at market cap. That's a very clever idea. You know, not a lot of people have that idea. And he has a, that's one of many ideas he has. Not a lot of people have clever ideas. I'll be honest with you. I yeah. really think that it's very few and losing clever idea people to these other sectors, is a failure of the Academy. In fact, it's probably the greatest failure because of all the bureaucracy and bullshit in the Academy. The fact that some handful of people actually doing clever innovative work is the thing that keeps it going. Um, the yeah. things I'll say about the clinical side, I think, you know, you talk about the glory, you know, was there a, a glory day? I will say that paper to electronic has made many things worse. When you deal with paper, it's as fast as your brain and hand can work from notes to evaluations computer is as slow as your password logins and two-factor authentication and all this stuff that i don't want to waste my time with frankly and every time i do a note on the epic there's a 120 millisecond lag every click every single click my brain is not is not wired for 120 millisecond lags and if twitter or facebook had 120 millisecond lags they'd fire the whole engineering staff they'd fire them all and say people will not use our product they'll get bored and look elsewhere i think that's a huge failure um, and, and you talk about the grants and policy work. I think that's a great point, which is that you all in Portal have written some of the most impactful essays about policy, and those aren't quote unquote original articles. And so there's sort of, a, uh, uh, you know, people may look down upon that. Uh, related to that, I think, is uh, at some point in one's career, uh, writing grants is, a, is a, frankly, I think, a waste of time. Uh, you know, I've published enough papers, you published enough papers, uh, you know, written books people know what you're going to get. And you know, you know, you're going to get a a certain output. You know, you're going to get a certain sort of uh, examination of certain issues. Um, What do you need? What do you need all this grant paper for uh, grants for? And the people who are scoring the grants, frankly, they're ill suited um, to even evaluate the grant. They're not in the field. They don't know shit about it. And maybe they're not even good in their own field. I mean, frankly, that's how I feel sometimes. Um, And so I think these, these factors are bad. It's a bad recipe. If, uh, if, If you lose a Peter, if you lose uh, a Neil Shaw, I mean, these are clever people. Um, I think it's it's really troubles me.
1: Agreed. And we haven't even gotten to the the elephant in the room, which is what the pandemic has done in terms of particularly female academics and the ability to. You know, uh, have the flexibility that's needed to juggle uh, all of the balls that, that 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 are oftentimes needed to be juggled. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely one silver lining of all of this. I think is is. At least my institution, and I think many others have, but I think this equally applies to the private sector, so maybe there's not a relative advantage, Hmm. but the understanding that we can do a lot of these things, not as rigidly as we did before, so a little bit more flexibility from working from home, a little bit more flexibility in terms of how you hold your meetings. Um, All of that sort of stuff I think can help. Mm -hmm. But again, is that if, if the private sector is already caught on to that as well, that's not uh, necessarily going to be a relative. Exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I am hopeful that, you know, it it is a sense uh, that, uh, at least one of the things, again, with the pandemic is the notion that uh, you know, we botch so many things in terms of our rollout, in terms of our preparation, and hopefully that motivates a new generation of scholars to um, to get into the mix. And that's yeah. my hope. But uh, I think sense. you are noticing what a lot of people are noticing in that you see, you are seeing an exodus. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Okay.
0: And, uh, let's, let's, let's go to aducanumab. People are going to want to talk about this. Okay. (laughs) This is an Alzheimer's drug. It's a monoclonal antibody. Um, it is, uh, uh, directed, uh, and its goal is, uh, to reduce amyloid plaque formation. And, uh, it's not the only kid on the block. I mean, there've been a lot of other drug products from a number of different companies. They've all failed spectacularly, spectacular failure. And in addition to that, Alzheimer's is a key disease that robs six million Americans of their future, and it robs them of their uh, sense of identity. It's one of the, I think, most pernicious and horrible illnesses takes away who we are. Um, It also is a huge economic burden. I mean, not only is the person suffering, but they require care. It often, that care is not well compensated in the system. And so loved ones have to give up work and give up uh, their own ambitions to take care of a loved one with Alzheimer's disease. So catastrophic disease. Um, And people have tried for years, all sorts of different things. And we have a few things that are approved prior to this uh, Biogen pharmaceutical drug approval. Uh, They don't work that well. I mean, they're not really fundamentally disease modifying agents. They have very small impacts on, uh, on, on different measures of cognitive function. No one would call them a cure. No one would call them uh, even sort of fundamentally changing the disease trajectory. They are, they're really sort of um, uh, maybe just treat some symptoms of the disease at best or very, very slight drugs. And many, many drugs have failed. Why do I say all this? This should give you the idea that the pretest probability that anything new is gonna work is rock bottom. It's as low as it goes. It's the lowest pretest probability that you got a drug that works. Enter Biogen. Biogen, uh, you know, I think they had a phase one, two study. Um, they saw some promising reductions in amyloid plank. They launched two uh, concurrent phase three randomized controlled trials uh, in mild to moderate Alzheimer's dementia. Um, they halted both those trials about a year ago and announced yep. that they had been halted for futility. They failed. Um, in those trials, in one of the two, there was a change in the dose to sort of a higher dose And the other one, they used a set of doses that are considered low doses. The low dose trials is like totally failure, failure, didn't improve any sort of measure of cognitive function in a post hoc analysis of the other study that was halted early for futility um, in the group of people that got the higher dose. uh, They claim that there is a, quote, trend towards uh, benefit. so here you two are. Key,
1: two, two keys. there, post hoc and trend. Yes. Yeah. We'll yeah right. Post hoc, yeah. trend
0: and subgroup. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and you've already halted for futility. And we know from work by Montori and colleagues that when you halt for futility, whatever you're going to see is likely to be exaggerated uh, and it, it's probably going to go uh, regress to the true effect with with further conduction or with conducting the trial further. Um so what are we to do with these data? Um, it does, and it, lowers, it it reduces amyloid plaque in the brain, sure. But whether amyloid plaque is a bystander or has anything to do with the causal pathway, no one knows. No one
1: knows. And it. And again, our, our, our past record of tra- drugs that have an effect on, on plaque production suggests no. Uh, and pretty yeah. conclusively suggests no. And so Correct. unless you have something magic something a smoking gun that suggests that this this is somehow different uh but you don't here and so uh yes we're happy to happy to carry on this conversation but yeah that's uh, i think you've set the stage well in terms okay. of yeah no, what uh, what so, fda had had received and yes. i think there's a decision point here there's tremendous pressure i mean you've noted the, the billions that have been spent on drug development. You've noted the, uh, you know, uh, billions if we want to put a dollar sign on it, but the significant human toll Mm -hmm. of Alzheimer's disease. And there's a huge amount of pressure to let's find something that works. But uh, what does that mean? It, It doesn't serve anyone except for the manufacturer. It doesn't serve the public. It doesn't serve their families. It doesn't serve society and the healthcare system to lower the bar for drug approval to provide some sense of hope to patients that yes, we have something new. Um, we don't need something new. We need something that works and. I, I, I think I can understand the pressure that the agency is on. I can understand the uh, anger and the desire uh, and the fervent hope to get new treatments from the patient community. Mm-hmm. That is is clear, but I think we have the FDA there for a reason. It's a, Agency that is formed, uh, the modern FDA is is a creation of uh, historical lessons and tragedy in the pharmaceutical market. And we completely sort of wipe the slate clean in terms of learning the lessons of history here and the implications are potentially massive. Um, And so... You know, I, I don't think, I think if you talk to most, it, what's been really remarkable about the Atakinamab decision mm-hmm. is the near unanimity among uh, uh, pharmaceutical policy <laughs> experts uh, of various stripes. Um, and uh, y- y- you've got people like Peter uh, Buck and Craig Garthwaite co-authoring op-eds, uh usually on opposite sides of the divide yes. um, really cr- going to task on w- what a failure this was and my colleague obviously Aaron Kesselheim called this arguably the worst decision in uh, in FDA history yes. in, in in recent years and uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot to to try to understand here in terms of uh, what decision the FDA made and how it was influenced um, and uh, but I think before we even get yes, into yes. further into that decision I think we need to take stock and say this is not coming out of the blue yes. this is an ongoing trend and if yes. there's anyone who's noted this uh, ongoing trend it's you I. Um. Eh, I mean, we can start in, in the cancer drug space, but yes. uh, the, the history of increasingly approving drugs on the basis of more limited evidence is something that's been going on for the past decade. Yes. Um, and that is the number of pivotal trials that's required to support drug approval. Uh, whether or not uh, the duration of those trials, whether or not they were surrogate endpoints or hard endpoints. I mean, in every case, what we're doing is, uh, in a sense, allowing drugs on the market with more limited evidence. And here is a remarkable case. I mean, what is different about this is that the evidence was virtually
0: Um, (laughs) not. Let let me stop. Let me, let me, let me dive on that a little bit more because I want to come to these broader issues, but I just want to finish, finish smashing this to little bits. Um, (laughs) um, Okay. So we, we talked about pretest probability. We talked about the two studies. We talked about inconclusive results, early stopping subgroup analysis, post hoc analysis in a um, you put all that together. And, you know, somebody might say, well, what's the chance this drug actually helps people? 50, 50, Hey, 50, 50. It's like 2% it works, 98% it doesn't. It's not 100% it don't work. It's not 100% it doesn't work, but it's not 50-50. It's closer to the bottom. In fact, much closer to the bottom. That's based on the pretest probability. That's based on the fact that these type of evidence is, very, is not very persuasive. It's a lot of smoke and mirrors, but it's not a lot of actual evidence that it has a therapeutic effect on outcomes people care. And this is putting aside yes. the fact that the magnitude of the effect might not be clinically meaningful. Put that aside. We're just talking about any statistical effect. Um, then enter the fact that in a normal world, the FDA would just tell them to go uh, go away. You're done. You're rejected. Bye bye. Yeah. Do the, th- do the phase study. three study,
1: exactly. you know,
0: um, is it okay to take, to think 2% is promising to do another phase three study properly? Sure. That's the company's prerogative. The FDA should say, do your study. If you have a good result. Uh, if you do two studies, if you really confirm this effect, um, one more slide point, this is kind of a space where two studies make sense because, uh, so many candidate compounds have failed. Uh, nothing is really transformative. You really want to make sure you're not, um, chasing a flash in the pan. You really have something substantive. So that's why I think two studies has a much stronger post-test probability that something's a real effect rather than spurious effect. Um, So anyway, the FDA should have rejected it. They didn't. They had advisory committees. They had a couple. Um, Aaron Kesselheim was one of the members on the committee, Caleb Alexander, a lot of uh, thoughtful people in policy, Um, different than the oncology drug advisory committees, by the way, which pick people who are oncologists who know very little of policy. Uh, Here you pick people who know a lot about drug policy. And I think that's partly why this committee was sensible and said, no, no go. No, this is not sufficient for regular marketing authorization, which is what the b- sponsors sought. Um, they sought that ten, ten,
1: vote, ten, ten votes, no, and ten one ab- no. abstention. Yeah,
0: one okay. abstention. Yeah, <laughs> it's a slam dunk. Don't do this. Uh, uh, and yet, when the Padufa date came, the FDA pulled out of nowhere and accelerated approval and gave it to Biogen. Um, that appro- yeah, that approval was on the basis of amyloid plaque reduction, which they themselves, in a 2018 guidance document, said is not an endpoint suitable for accelerated approval because it is not reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. So the statutory language, of course, for an accelerated approval endpoint is that it is a surrogate reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. Here, the FDA says just three years ago, this ain't that. Amyloid reduction is not that because we just don't know if an amyloid reduction constitutes uh, any chance that you have a meaningful benefit.
1: And to date, well, I mean, what we've discussed is purely the science, yes. and I think you've made the you've made a very convincing case <laughs> that uh, the likelihood of this drug having a uh, statistically significant effect on some sort of meaningful clinical endpoint, regardless of the magnitude of that right. effect, is going is is low. Um, what is perhaps even more troubling here is uh, a little bit of uh, what i would say uh, i at worst misleading uh at best perhaps uh non forthcoming um but the fact that the advisory committee was never given a chance or never Mm. provided an opportunity to discuss accelerated approval. Now we had after the fact and after some
0: The camera
1: has just paused, we just were considering Say that part again. You, uh,
0: you cut out for a second. You said after the fact, after the fact, yeah,
1: after the fact. And so we had here as after Uh, The FDA had said, uh, well, this is something that we considered after the fact. And um, uh, I think there was a recent stat news expose which suggested that FDA was knee deep in consideration of the accelerated approval pathway Mm. as a viable option for getting this drug to market well before this advisory committee was set to meet. And so there you've got a, a... sort of a backtracking and and a non, uh, very uh, uh, conflicted statements from the FDA as to at what point was it seriously weighing this? Because I think there were concerns you raised about the the accuracy or the, I, I guess, the, whether or not this drug uh met the criterion for accelerated approval i think the advisory committee would have had s- some uh very knowledgeable things to say about that and been, yeah. i think they were yeah and they were not given the chance to do so so Which now we've got it uh, we've got a question of very low evidence uh, we've got a cool question of transparency and uh, <laughs> regulatory capture in terms of the degree to which Biogen and FDA were working in a way that, uh, you know, I think there have been prior uh, higher ups in FDA who have said yep, cooperation between industry and FDA is important, it is vital. But this degree of non transparent cooperation, where the FDA is almost acting as an advocate on behalf of the company as and ignoring its consumer protection role is very troublesome. Um, well and yeah. uh,
0: Cooperation is think- okay. Collusion is not, and this is very um,
1: <laughs> and where Where is that line drawn? Yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I, 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 I guess I hate to say it, but um, You know, I guess just uh, one more thing about the story. And then afterwards, of course, three panelists resign, including Aaron, um, uh, 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 because this decision is spectacularly bad. Um, Some of the unique things here is, I think, like, why does this decision get more attention than other decisions? I just want to mention, like, you know, cancer drugs. I I joked, uh, but there's a lot of truth to it that we have six aducanumab a year in cancer medicine. Um, But the reason it doesn't get the same attention is a couple things. One. Each of our bad drug approvals does not have a market share of 6 million Americans. It doesn't have that size. And, 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 and budgetary impact and cost are two different things. Cost is the price per unit. Here we're talking about 56 grand per person per year. Uh, budgetary impact is the price per unit per time. by the number of people who are going to get it. And budgetary yeah. impact of cancer drugs, even if it's 200 grand. 400 grand if the number of people getting it is a thousand ten thousand it's one thing if the number of people getting it is a million now the budgetary impact is like hep c drugs it's crushing it's soul crushing um so that's one of the distincting things here the other thing is every time you approve a drug that doesn't actually do it doesn't work and people take it it actually makes it harder to do clinical trials in that space Uh, you'd have to do it after or in concert with this drug that doesn't work uh, it muddies the water makes it difficult um so i think these are some of the reasons why these policy people you want to say something
1: yeah, no, I, I think yeah, I think you nailed it on the head. In terms of implications, uh, you talked about the the budgetary impact, huge budgetary impact. Um, I think that there's also you talked about the the futil- futility now of evidence generation that's going to get us the actual answer that we want and this notion that there's going to be a nine-year window in which uh, oh, this that's uh, to point confirmatory out. to trial will be done under the accelerated Ridiculous. approval pathway.
0: So they have a long time before yeah. their uh, check is due. Uh, they have a exactly. long time to bleed the public of cash uh, and yeah. offer this questionable product, probably worthless. I think the probability that it helps is very low um, before they're asked to pay the check. And uh, it'll be difficult to accrue, um, and people will cross over potentially, which they will say is the reason why they didn't find a statistically significant effect. Um, yes. and then the other problem I think is, um, uh, um, the, the trials were for mild and moderate Alzheimer's and they gave a blanket approval. So of course, yes. naturally people will be giving this problem. And that's a hugely important
1: point for. too. That was another thing that confused many experts was <clears> why was the indication made so broad? Um, and, uh, we, we simply don't know. Um, uh, so and the implications go beyond that. Now you've given people false hope that this is a drug that is going to do something meaningful. We don't have the evidence to suggest that it will. Um, and uh, I, I think as, uh, as part of this, we've uh, people have talked about the floodgates being open, but particularly in the Alzheimer's space, the notion that now this is an acceptable surrogate endpoint, Um, that many companies can now use to get onto the market uh, where we know that this surrogate has issues in terms of its association with the actual clinically uh, meaningful hard endpoint that we care about, that's hugely problematic as well. And so- And and
0: we've seen that. Lilly said they're gonna file by the end of the year.
1: Yep, exactly. And so uh, this is, when we're talking about Well, we want to, this speaks to, again, we've talked about this before, but I I guess this notion of the false sense of how you promote innovation. This is not, what does innovation mean? And sure, we have a ton of new drug approvals of which adecanumab is now one, um, but are those the drugs you want? And what is the implication of FDA allowing these drugs to market? Yes, you get patients to access them, But if they don't work, then patients are actually getting harmed or wasting money. And we're bringing and incentivizing companies to bring drugs to market that have this effect rather than drugs that show a real clinically meaningful improvement. (laughs) And so that's not the innovation we want. (laughs) and
0: and yeah. and i guess the real question. i mean i mean uh, i don't think anyone thinks the fda is the agency that should make sure we have drugs that have a two percent chance of working but no lower i mean if you get to such low percentages and I, you know I, I keep throwing that number out there i don't have i can't prove you that it is that number in fact no one can prove the number because the that uh, doing this sorts of bayesian calculations impossible when there have been such a there's no real success in which one can extrapolate numbers from uh, but yet i suspect it is quite quite low if you look across drug development broadly uh, anyway i'm happy to talk about that, that could be another, like, uh, we could write a whole paper on that topic. But um, I think that, I mean, you're, you the deeper question here is, I mean, I think, I, I think we've hit most of the I can keep points that the clinical trial evidence is limited. Uh, They've expanded the indication, accelerated approval. They didn't discuss that. Um, They, uh, uh, they didn't listen to the advisory committee. This is the only time in my knowledge they've ever went against a 10, zero, sorry, a 10, zero one vote. Sometimes they go against a split vote and approve it anyway, but never a unanimous vote that says don't do it uh, without talking to the committee. People have resigned. It's gotten everyone in a furor. It's going to potentially bankrupt Medicare, uh, which I don't think they'll have a legal Avenue to escape paying for this. Even if one in three people with Alzheimer's takes this, Drug, it's a 112 billion dollar outlay, according to uh, Sachs and Bagley in uh, Health Affairs. It's going to bankrupt mm-hmm. us all. And what is it? And 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 really, when you talk about a drug that doesn't work, uh, that everyone pays for, it's not a drug uh, or a medicine. It's a financial product that helps enrich shareholders uh, at, at the expense of the the general public. Um, but I think the issue and particularly at into-
1: the expense of very sick families. Uh, so, well, they're the um, and very they're vulnerable the, families. They're yeah. the
0: victim of it because they're yeah. given false hope. Um, and, and, you know, we could have a system with false hope. We just abolish the FDA and then it'll be false hope city. Um, but we don't do that. We have a restrictive system which uses the FDA. Uh, and here they don't enforce any real efficacy requirement, which is even actually I think worse than not having it at all, but we could debate that. But here's my question for you, the mm-hmm. capture. I mean, I, I, personally, I do not believe the FDA is, is actually an agency that is in, is invested in the public interest at all. I think they're an agency that um, there are a lot of people there who want to keep their jobs or get promoted. And there are a lot of people there who want to leave their jobs and get a much better job in the industry. And they're an industry that works to serve the corporate interest and provide window dressing that we're doing safety and efficacy testing and really not enforce either um, and keep corporate profits high. Uh, And that's their real goal. Their goal is not to protect the American public. Am I, have I become too cynical?
1: I I don't think you're cynical in terms of what the outcomes are. I would say, you know, I work closely with the FDA. I I think very highly of many people in the agency. And I think that in many ways, this is the same sort of thing we talk about with financial conflicts of interest Mm -hmm. among clinicians. We've got to get away from thinking at the individual level. Is this individual agent at the FDA somehow Captured. No, it's, 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 it operates at a systemic level. Yes. And right. uh, basically, what the systemic effects <laughs> are are we have increasingly put FDA's operating budget into the hands of manufacturers through a user fees. Now, there's a natural uh, implication here. Who is your master? Is it the public at this point, or is it the industry? And increasingly, I think the notion is that FDA sees its mission as facilitating what the industry wants. It doesn't help that every five years you have to renegotiate the the DUVA agreement uh, to figure out uh, to keep the agency running. And so uh, what's being lost in all of this is the fact that, I mean, if you go to FDA's site protecting the public health, by ensuring the safety, efficacy, and security of human and veterinary drugs, biologic products, and medical devices is one mm-hmm. of its stated missions. That is a mission that seems to be failing. And I think it is uh, you know, harder in the sense of regulatory capture is one thing. The capture of patient support groups is another yes. thing as well. And so there's a lot of capturing by industry going on. And it is to be. It is easy for those groups that have been captured to say, "Well, we are doing what patients want." Well, we are doing what some captured groups might want, but I don't think we're necessarily doing what your average American wants in terms of ensuring that we get drugs to the market that actually work. And we know what happens. We we've talked about this, you know, in the last. Cycle where they were thinking about putting an FDA commissioner mm-hmm. in who who didn't believe in having the FDA. Yes. Uh, Yelp for pre- drugs was check, yeah, 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 exactly. Pre-check for 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 uh, efficacy. We know where that leads. That's the the reason we put that in place in 19, in the sixties was because that didn't work. It, yeah. it and so we are uh we are destined to uh, you know uh, tragically relearn the history the other implication of this is fda is is essentially making its role in uh in the pharmaceutical market uh less relevant by doing what it's doing essentially what is going to happen and this is uh, by necessity, right, we're going to have payers take a more active role in who gets access to what medications. Well, Personally, I, I'd yeah. rather have scientists at the yes. FDA dictating a little bit about what drugs get to market rather than having my insurer tell me that I can only get this, this, or this drug because the costs are too high. But let me, let me um, point out
0: something there. The insurer... Yeah their incentive will be to buffer year to year. They don't want big year to year variability, but in the long haul, their incentive is to grow this pie as big as it can get. They wanna, they, they get, they, they, they're they limited by medical loss ratio at a certain fraction of revenue that flows through the system. So a society that spends 50% of GDP on healthcare is great for insurers. So they will grow it. They just grow it slowly and in a way that balances some of the That's a good point.
1: That's a, that, that, that is a good point. Um, uh, but the way in which they grow it is is also a question I have Correct. in terms of it's capricious. Which, yeah, exactly. Is it going to be based on uh, actual clinical evidence or not is, is an interesting question. But I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, what is the potential silver lining here? The silver lining is I mean, if FDA continues down this path, the pressure for pricing and drug pricing reform is going to grow and grow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've already have some strange bedfellows who are thinking about passing legislation that may, uh, help along this path. I think that pressure will grow. Now I am a bit of a skeptic like you and a cynic to some degree. I think that pressure needs to be overwhelming. And And the degree that, uh, it needs to reach before Congress will actually pass something like H.R. Uh, 3 will, uh, will need to be overwhelming uh, before we can get there. But I, I think we do are going to see more states take action in terms of pricing reform. Yeah. And uh, I think at some point you will get the federal government seriously uh, getting close, if not actually passing. Uh, drug pricing reform. Okay. Uh, let, let me
0: say this. Let me say yeah. this on this topic. I think that aducanumab is a very visible symbol, as you point out, of a trend that's been going on long before it, and it'll continue even after it. I fear, and I think there's a deeper symbol. There's, of course, a symbol of this particular regulation question, but I think it's it's how the left has lost lost. And let me tell you why I think that we're we've lost on the political left. Political left. Those of us who believe that government can have powers to make lives better for average people, for poor people, for middle-class people and create a- opportunities of upward mobility. We have lost in a number of fronts. Once we we lost the Supreme Court, I mean, that's gone. We we lost that, we got to admit that, that's an easy vote. Um, we've also lost the universities while, while we were snoozing we have created a university system where uh, most academics I know are addicted to pharmaceutical money. And there is not really like the state university professor who actually has any support to do any thinking. Everyone is just uh, got their hat in hand going out to Genentech trying to get a few more trials. It's the easiest way to a career. So we've turned a whole university. You know, I read a book, uh, Genentech, The Origin Story, and it talked about how Boyer, when he was at UCSF and he created Genentech, people like look down their nose at him. They're like, look at this guy trying to profit from science, you know. Ugh. And now, of course, everybody's like their whole goal in life is to have some bullshit spin-off <laughs> company. They don't care if it works or not, you know, and uh, and maybe blood based cancer screening will be the next one. You know, I mean, they don't even they don't even they don't even want a randomized trial to be the barrier. That's going to make it harder for them to make their loot. Um, so we lost that. You know, I think we've lost the universities. I think Bay has some good things, but it also was a tremendous loss for what it means to be an academic. Um, we've lost the FDA. Um, and I guess what irritates me the most, uh, and this is a big con- conceptual thing, is that there are many people who claim to be progressive left people, Um, they obsess about uh, visual displays of purity, purity testing and virtue signaling. And that's what the whole Twitter and social media is just so... Enriched with that, they don't. They they they're losing half of America by just coming across as such condescending little bastards. Uh, we're losing all these issues. This constant virtue signal. Not a single one of them wants to invest the mental energy to actually chase the money because the real problems with with society are uh, they they are these very esoteric decisions like aducanumab. Aducanumab is not. Um, you know, when Trump runs for office and he says that, you know, you the system is rigged and it, it resonates with people who have seen stagnation in wages, who've seen lower yeah. opportunity than their parents. Um, but he's wrong about why it's rigged. It's rigged by people like him. You know, it's rigged by that kind of politicking. And this is why it's rigged. Aducanumab is the rigged system. It means less wages, less upward mobility. Um, we didn't talk about the fact that we'll pay for an but We won't pay for a caretaker. We can talk about that. Um, you know, yeah. that was a really insightful point. Um, It steals money from average Americans, makes it harder to rise through the ranks. It robs us the American dream. It is giving you a product that probably doesn't work. And it's all done in the name of science and medicine, which makes it all the more sinister in my mind. And it is how the left is really losing. And our eye is off the prize. We're so distracted and nobody wants to talk about this issue. And that's what really angers me.
1: I think I, I think you made a, a really <laughs> compelling critique. I think that yeah, the increasing inequality of the haves and have nots, have nots in society, uh, and the fact that systems are uh, operating right now to increase that rather than decrease that. And you can talk about I, I you know, I have my disagreements with uh, certain elements of. The critiques of a pandemic response, but I think the point is well taken that the disproportionate burden of a lot of these policies are felt by those with less means, um, and I, I think that's you know, undeniable. You can't you can't get around that, um, and I think you're right. I would th- this I want to focus just a bit on the sinister aspect people are being told that this is what is necessary to have medical innovation and I think that's the real uh, tragedy is that this is not good innovation Um, and this is not what we want and what we want we can have uh, with a lot better redesign of the system and we are, you know, screaming at test cases like this. We parade uh, Adalimumab's manu- manufacturer, his, the CEO before Congress. We do dog and pony shows about what is wrong with drug pricing. Drug pricing has been an issue foremost in people's concerns about healthcare for the past 10 years or so. Um, But are we actually making a dent right now in addressing the problem? No, there seems to be a lot of virtuous signaling about it. Um, And so what is unfortunate about all of this is we are given sort of uh, tokens and being told that we are making progress. Um, the fact is that major reform of the system is fundamentally needed. Now, in our you know structure of politics, those reforms usually don't happen without some sort of exogenous shock. Yeah. Um, and the real question is, how much further widening of inequality are we going to get and further rating of the taxpayer funds are we going to get? Uh, by manufacturers producing drugs that aren't very effective before we say enough's enough we need to do something and uh, it's it is a an interesting position to be in as a uh, academic because you can only draw attention to the issue. You don't necessarily get a chance so you can try to shift it but figuring out how to, uh, actually drive social movements um i it's it's not in the academics wheelhouse right. and so right. um you know we, we need to uh do a better job of uh, our job is to provide the evidence um our job is to make sure that that evidence is relatable that it is easily digestible um but there needs to be more coordination if we're talking about a progressive movement that is wants to get things done in terms of turning that into uh, into action. And, and so if
0: you can't beat him join him, which is what I see all around. But I will say uh, uh, yeah. I mean this is a question for you, uh, which is um, are Democrats even better than Republicans? I mean, we've lived through let's talk about Clinton Clinton, Obama, Bush, no. Trump, um, you know just the last four. Uh, and, and here's what my, my, my honest observations. I mean, of course, Clinton's fiscal policy was actually very right. It was very centrist or right center, right. Um, it wasn't truly uh, liberal, progressive economic policy. Um, the FDA under, you know, Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush, in my mind, is an agency that has the same. It's just been drifting the same way towards pro-industry goals. Um, we had Exondis wasn't that that was Trump. Exondis was under Trump and aducanumab is under Biden. Ironically, exondus is a lot cheaper budgetary impact because there's not a lot of kids <laughs> with do muscular dystrophy. Um, yeah. uh, there's a lot, this is a lot bigger uh, impact. Um, we see, let's talk about liberal progressives. I'm gonna have an article about, but Howard Boschner's gone, poof, he's gone. He, he's resigned and I'm gonna have an article hopefully where I'll, I'll articulate what I think um, uh, are, the, are the things in that issue, but, but Janet Woodcock's there. And there is no outpouring of criticism for Janet Woodcock to go. Um, even though, or state- from
1: politicians yeah. about Ada Attic- Kenneman, yeah, be honest. From that, yeah, yeah.
0: So, I guess my question is I guess for you and I, you know, we're very much aligned on these issues. You, I, Walid, Joe Ross, Aaron, et cetera, et cetera. There are many sort of people who are, I think, pro uh, regulation as a force of good. Um, for us, I guess the question I have is who should we vote for? Who is what's the path for us?
1: Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things about uh, pharmaceutical regulation and pharmaceutical policy is the pharmaceutical lobby is so powerful and its ties are just as deep in the Republican community as they are in the Democratic community. So um, in terms of, is it it necessarily a, a party issue, No, I I don't think so and I think what you've said in terms of how the administrations have all consistently uh, helped in the swing of this pendulum to less consumer protection, to more promotion of industry growth is a legacy that's been inherited from administration to administration. And so honestly, when it comes time to it, I appreciate the sort of work that something like Patients for Affordable Drugs does in attempting to identify politicians, regardless of party who are advocating for sensible pharmaceutical policy reform. So I'll say at least within the pharmaceutical policy space, the differentiation between the parties is not as great as I think it is in other areas. Mm. That being said, the Democrats are the ones who have pushed forward at least HR three. And so maybe I am underselling the differences, but I think uh, I think there are key Democrats who are obstacles in the way of pharmaceutical reform.
0: I agree. Yeah. Okay, that's well put. Um, I know our time is up. I'll give you the last word. Uh, people should follow your writings. I think um, these issues are, are nuanced. They're complex. Um, you know, the system is rigged, but you need to know exactly where is, where is it rigged, how is it rigged, and how might you combat that, and what are the ways to fix it? And, there, and there's no better writer on that uh, than you, Amit, and, and your colleagues there in the portal group. Um, I'll give you the final word, aducanumab. Good drug, great drug. No, just kidding. Just kidding. What, what, what are your, <laughs> final thoughts?
1: Yeah. A- a- aducanumab, a canary in a coal mine. Um, mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> this is the, one of the last wake up calls we're going to get uh, about a system that has uh, increasingly put uh, the real needs of patients uh, to the side and increasingly put the interests of manufacturers um, uh, on a pedestal. And I think that in terms of the last word, what what does this all mean? It means we really need a change of leadership at the FDA. We need a change in culture at the FDA, but we're not gonna get that without the administration knowing that uh, this uh, series of decisions that have happened are catastrophic in the sense of what it means for the health system and that these are are not uh, going to give patients relief, that they're actually going to get more hardship from this. This is going to create more inequality, more have-nots, and uh, we need to keep that drumbeat going because unless we get change at the agency, we are going to have, uh, by better or worse rationing, that's going to come from other uh, parties within the pharmaceutical system. And that rationing, I can uh, I can sense will be far worse than what we have now yeah. in terms of actually uh, getting the drugs we need to the people who need them.
0: Amit Sarpatore, thank you so much. Thanks.
1: Thanks for
0: listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.